Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck Gnostics? What the fuck theists? What the fuckadelics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Today on the show, uh, Dan Zanes is here. Dan Zanes was in one of my favorite bands back in the day called the Del Fuegos out of Boston. When I was in college, they just made their break. Their first album was fucking awesome. Their second album was awesome. Then something happened, as, as happens with bands, but there was a big controversy around them. But now he's like the guy. He's like the world music, family music dude. He's the world family music dude. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. He'll explain it, but I had no idea that he was so popular. A couple of years ago, I, I realized it was him, that he had uh, really transitioned into sort of a, a kind of global-oriented folk music geared at children and, and even wider uh, geared to families with children. But uh, it's a pretty beautiful story. Considering he was in a you know a major rock band that never quite cut it, but they were good, man. I mean, I've still got most of the Del Fuego's albums, and I still listen to them. So it was a real thrill to me to talk to Dan and to hear his story uh, about how he got to where he is, which is a, a preeminent you know family children music guy. But it didn't start that way. It started out with rock and roll and started out in Boston, Massachusetts, and I, it was uh, it's back in I guess it would be the eighties. Uh, early, what, early 80s, early to mid 80s, but uh, I remember them, and they were a great band, and it was a great conversation. Also on the show, I'm going to talk to Chris Mansfield of Fences. Their album, Lesser Oceans, comes out tomorrow. Uh, Mansfield is the guy who wore a handmade, homemade uh, Boomer Lives t-shirt on uh, The Tonight Show. Uh, He's been a huge fan of my show, and uh, I got into his shit, and then we talked for a bit, and I'll share that some of that conversation with you, uh, you know, heading into his new record. But what about it? What about people who listen to this show and why they listen to this show? Look, I'm having a, a bit of a battle, uh, an ongoing battle with nostalgia. I think as you get older, uh, one of the bigger wars is uh, is the, the battle against being consumed by nostalgia. And I know I talk a lot about uh, getting older and, and, and sort of handling uh, both success and disappointment. Uh, both personal and professional. And look, I am no perfect grown-up, that's for sure. I'm far from it. Like, I got into it yesterday on Twitter. I just blew up at a guy who uh, was supposed to play a part on my show, Marin. He had already done the part in two other episodes, and 
And then, uh, you know, out of nowhere, even though we booked him, uh, you know, he bailed on it because of, uh, you know, things that he said were out of his control. And I got mad and I posted it on Twitter, but then we worked it out on Twitter. And that's that's the way it goes. We kind of worked it out. He still bailed, but it is what it is. It's show business, right? And maybe I shouldn't use Twitter as my personal dumping ground. Pow, look out. Shit my pants. Just coffee.coop. That's classic ad format from from me, Mark Marin. One of my oldest and most uh uh and 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 uh, an advertiser that I'm still uh inconsistently uh uh but uh always loyal to uh, just coffee.coop. They have the WTF blend there you can get. I get a little on the back end of that, but good stuff. You can get that at WTFpod.com. But but I felt bad and yeah, I, I tell you, man, it's very rare that I, I get on Twitter for an hour and uh, I don't feel filthy for a few minutes for some reason but that's just the nature of it everything's public it's amazing how uh, with technology how efficiently and quickly and, and thoroughly we can uh, put our mistakes out into the world so the the bottom line is i'm trying to keep you uh in the loop of, of what's happening with me there's been some fear expressed that uh, you know i, I i've just uh, i'm going to become successful and play you know, and, and complacent or, or perhaps uh, pleasant but again, do not know who or why or, or, or how this show comes across to people, who listens to what. But, uh, but I did that thing before Rob McElhaney, and uh, I just talked. And I get very insecure about these talks because, you know, I don't know if they're funny. I don't know if they're, they're relevant. I don't know if they mean anything to anybody. And I, a lot of times, leave the garage thinking, like, what the fuck was that? What was that? But after uh, last Thursday's intro, I, there was this posted on the comment board. Today's intro, but this is by Richard. Today's intro conversation to Rob McElhaney's interview about growing up was one of your best. I find myself emotionally engaged with you about the heartbreak of being a grown-up. At 42 years old, six years into a corporate job as an oil industry analyst, I've been coming to terms with the reality that things have not turned out as I'd hoped or expected. Before joining the corporate workforce, I lived about 12 to 15 years as a visual artist, creating undecipherable oil paintings in Houston, Texas. I have a a large body of work and have had many art exhibitions locally and internationally. I've sold several hundred paintings, but I never made enough selling paintings to make a living. I never quite got enough traction with the galleries. I haven't given up, but I've had to set aside my artist lifestyle for an eight to five gig doing research and writing industry news and reports. In order to maintain the business facade, I've convinced myself that I'm an undercover liberal environmentalist investigating the offshore oil industry. In truth, I'm very good at my corporate job, and I keep getting promotions and more money. I question whether or not I still have that idealistic artist inside me. My family is thrilled that I've quote-unquote grown up and have a real job. Your podcast is a beacon of hope to the frustrated artist in me. I love your interviews with creative people who continue to live the dream. I struggle with the heartbreak uh, of growing up on a daily basis. Thank you, Richard. Now, it's not nothing. I know some people out there, I know some people are like, that guy is a whiner. You know, I, I know you guys who think that. I know you women who think that, that, you know, just shut up and man up or shut up and buck up and shut up and, you know, quit whining. This is life. You know, but life doesn't have to, you don't have to put that wall up. You don't have to be like, you know, fuck you, quit it. Part of life is, you know, fully experiencing the pain and not just shutting it out and dumping the anger of uh, shutting it out onto everyone around you and claiming that is a philosophically righteous position. I also got this email that was very touching. Uh, along the same lines of of how this show resonates with people. Mark, first off, I love the show and your brand of comedy. This is from Casey. 
in general, uh, and in a way, I suppose, due to your extreme openness, I love you. Let's not let that sentence hang there too long so it doesn't get weird. The reason I'm writing you is to say that besides the fact that it takes a little over two hours of time a week out of my shit job, I'm thankful for the show because of the effect it's having on me and my stepfather. He has been in my life since I was two, so I don't really see him as a quote-unquote stepfather, but rather just my dad. However, the fact that we share no genes means for us that we've never seen eye-to-eye on shit, which is the norm by this time. I'm 27 now. Our brains simply don't work the same. Recently, though, my dad discovered WTF, independent of me, and it has been something that he and I have bonded over in a way we've never bonded over anything. Our conversations almost exclusively begin with, quote, did you hear that new Marin yet, unquote. It's been really nice to laugh with my dad. I sincerely believe that there is nothing that can bring two people together like sharing a laugh, and you're giving that to us. Real quick, in my life, I have dropped out of high school, got my girlfriend pregnant at 17, and generally been a fuck-up, but also got a good job regardless of my education. Married that girlfriend, 10 years, still in love. Had three more kids, that's four, I know, holy shit. Bought a house, and generally made good. I put my dad through the ringer, but earned his respect by being a man. Now, through you, I'm making friends with him. So much so that I'm traveling with him from Daytona Beach to our former home state of Louisiana to see you in New Orleans, and I'm actually excited to be alone spending time with my dad. That's a gift from you to us, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know you've had dad problems, and I've identified with a lot of them, which makes it sort of ironic that you are kind of the bow on the package of reconciliation that I'm having with my dad. Thanks again. Can't wait to see you. Don't fuck it up, man. Casey. There you go. He also wrote, P.S. I've always dreamed of trying my hand at comedy. I've been consistently hitting two to three open mics per week for the last three months. But because of you, I refuse to call myself or be called a comedian. I'll earn that title just like you'd want. Well, Casey, that's that's fucking touching, man. And be sure when you're in New Orleans to say hi to me. You and your dad, come up, say hi to me. So those are the kind of emails that uh, make me more grateful than earning a living, more grateful than anything else is the fact that this show seems to provide something soothing to uh, those of us who are troubled in a certain way. Men and women alike, children as well. I have some very sensitive and very intelligent 13 to 14 year old fans. Okay, about the tour, let me get into this quickly because there's been shows added. Um, The Trocadero in Philadelphia, that's a two-show night. That's Friday, April 10th. There's been a show added at the Wilbur in Boston on April 11th. I don't know how that second show, that second show might be close to uh, selling out. On April 19th in Toronto at Bluma Appel, uh, there's been a second show added. So those tickets are available. There's been a second show added in Seattle at the Neptune on May 8th. And there's been a second show added at the Orange Peel in Asheville, North Carolina on May 14th. So those of you who got shut out of tickets, um, you can get them now. All right. So let me share with you now uh, some time with that I spent with uh, Chris Mansfield of the band Fences. Uh, he was a guy that pursued me pretty heavily on Twitter and otherwise. He's a huge fan of the show. So uh, we finally got him in here. He does very sort of heartfelt um, music. He works with Macklemore sometimes. And uh, the, uh, the new record, the new Fences album, Lesser Oceans, comes out tomorrow, March 10th. So you can get that wherever you get music. So let's, uh, here's uh, me and Chris Mansfield. So let's let's talk about our history. We uh, you've been trying to get on the show for about what three years? Yes, <laughs> three years. You first started coming at me. I didn't know who you were, mm-hmm. and then we had a problem. 
We had some tension. We had on a fight. The, yeah. We had a fight on DM, right? Yeah. And Which I, I wasn't sure. I felt I was like, I guess it's better than nothing. But <laughs> and then there was a period where you were only following me on Twitter. Yeah. I yeah. was Trying to make a point. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, and then you wore the uh, the homemade Boomer Live shirt. Yeah. On uh, the Tonight Show. I did. With were you with Macklemore that night? I was. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. It worked. But it took a long time. Yeah. Well, I just, it was, it made me, it was all making me feel uncomfortable. I wasn't sure what you're, why you were so compelled. What, what was it that you wanted to talk to me about? What did you feel that you needed to do this show so badly for? Um, it's funny. Um, I had no idea who you were for, you know, my entire life. life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah. Yeah. It's not like I was, I wasn't. That's the common story. Right. Um, where the hell have you been? I yeah. don't know who you are. Yeah. I don't know. Where's this guy? Where I was, yeah. where I was either, but I think um, there was a really poignant time living in Brooklyn with a girlfriend, like a a relationship that was like deteriorating, yeah. and you know, making a record, and every night my way to kind of isolate was to put your podcast on, oh, and to sort of decompress from writing and all the stress of that. So it was like, so I was like a friend in the night. Yeah, 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 totally. And it was, it you know, I kind of felt like, what is the uh, the sort of blanket over that entire period? Now that I've, I fucking made it to television. Like, who can I give a hat tip to? <laughs> and it and it happened. It happened to be you. It's a, it was a very clever hat tip because it was like uh, only only members of the club know that one. Oh yeah, uh, you know what's funny is my dad called me really excited, and he's like. Yeah, a bunch of people are hitting me up, and they're so excited. You're you're paying respects to Boomer, and apparently Boomer is like a a guy that my dad's friend knew uh, who died of cancer. Oh my god! And my dad didn't have the heart to say no. It's it's just a cat. Uh huh. So let the people think what they will. Yeah. So we didn't say nothing. You got a lot of tattoos. Those must have taken some time. Right. You don't care about the tattoos. I mean, I do. I like them, but. I view them in a different way than probably most people. How do you view the tattoos on your face? I see them as just sort of maybe like a a beautiful thing, like things that I like, you know, just like I think they're pretty. Well, what was the choice? Why did you get the ones you got? Um, Well, the thing is, is that, you know, I mean, the one above the left eye is Pitsula, which is an Elliot Smith song, which means like a precious thing in Yiddish, uh-huh. which is my favorite song. Um, coyote under here. Um, my mother has tons of coyotes on her property. And they're just like these kind of like sad, beautiful animals that I like. Uh-huh. You know? Um, you relate? I do. When I see them, I'm like, I get it. I got some around here. That was a dog. I thought I just heard that. It was pretty perfect. Yeah. I hope it was a coyote. <laughs> What's above your right eye? Uh, this. No. Uh, this this says lesser. That was for the record. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just it's a new one. Yeah. 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 So how long did it take you to write this record? Um, this Six record? years? <laughs> no. Um, well, what, well, let me ask you something, though. What happened with the first record? Was it... Was it supposed to be, did you feel okay with it? 
I did. I did. It was um, the first record was to really just break it down to fiddle into uh, the time frame is I dropped out of Berkeley. I was playing basement shows, doing, yeah. You know, doing you know acoustic guitar singing, and I'm starting to write kind of all these songs and stuff. And, yeah. Um, I was recording songs just on you know Garage Band and and whatever, right? And just sort of had about thirty songs or something. Had them up on uh, MySpace, yeah. And then Sarah found them and was like, "You should make a record." Yeah. But to me, at the time, it was like after Berkeley, I met Jenna, my girlfriend, yeah. and moved to New York. I worked at CBGB's for yeah. a while, which was cool. Towards the end, I guess, huh? Yeah. Um, kind of. You know, just kind of, I, I didn't have any uh, illusions of being like a, a, you know, a famous musician. I was just like, okay, I'm just, you know, dating this girl, living in Boston, moved to New York, mm -hmm. and, and just working and doing whatever. And, you know, and I had these songs and I would play a couple shows sometimes, you know, but it wasn't a big deal. Like, yeah, I'll play in this coffee shop or I'll play in this basement and whatever. But I just uh, put them out and then and then Sarah found them. But to me, it's like um, from being a kid uh, trying to, you know, I want to be a, a, you know, a jazz musician or I want to be a, a, a folk singer or whatever. It was like I was just trying to find... I think when I really look at it, I was trying to find a way to just like deal with everything and then just kind of finding it like simple being like, okay, a two minute song of me just, you know, finger picking an A minor to a C to a G and then, and then here we go. And it feels good. And, it, and, uh, maybe other people want to listen to it. You know, that's really it. It was pretty, it was pretty simple. I mean, my, my entire, uh, it seems like kind of like it was an accident. Not that I didn't want to be a musician. I but did, did it do well, the record? I think it sold like like 15,000 copies. Not not real well, but we played, you know, Lollapalooza and um, Bonnaroo and some things like that. We didn't do any television or anything, but it and, was, you know, a modest, like, indie album. Yeah, and Macklemore helps you out on this new one a little bit. Yeah, he, he How was... How do you know that guy? After Berkeley... I moved to New York yeah. with my girlfriend, moved to Seattle, went back because in my head, I'm like, let's, let's go to Seattle. Let's uh, try to settle there and do something. <laughs> and at that point I'd been, you know, singing songs and writing songs and just, you know, I mean, people move when they're young. Yeah. Like, let's try to find sure. our place. Fuck yeah, man. I moved around all the time. I went to, you know, LA, New York, yeah, San Francisco. I went all over to chasing it. Yeah. 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 Like Boston. Who, who knows what you're even looking for? You're just who the like, fuck knows? It's just like not where you were. Like gotta go, yeah, yeah. So we went there, and um, and then yeah, he he was there, and he was certainly not who he is now, and he's still just a guy, but he was not. He's a sober guy though now, right? Yeah, yeah, he is. Are you sober? Uh, I go back and forth. It's Don't sort know. of a, it's sort of a thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do. I you know, I what's do your the, thing, booze? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do the meetings, and I've been to rehab, and you know. It's tough, but um, I do my best. Right. Um, but my goal is to be sober. Okay, <laughs> I, I'll tell you that. But um, so you met him when he was just a guy, just a guy. Yeah, was, was like, he singing though? Was he rapping? 
yeah, he was rapping, he was doing it, and he's he's like, yeah, come see me, I'm playing at this place, 350 people sold out, and now he's far different than that. He's a pop, pop phenomenon. Yeah, he's a self-made he's a, man. Yeah, helped you out. Yeah, he did. Um, but you know, I don't, I have no trouble with that because um, I think it, the song "Other Side." 2010 that came out um that was about that song was basically about not drinking or using drugs you know that was a thing that we did and um i did that for him first that was when my record had already come out and uh he didn't have a, a huge push mm -hmm. he was just sort of doing his thing so we did that and i um went out and did my thing came back and um you know, he'd send me stuff from the heist, that record that like blew up and changed the world. And, you know, he sent me thrift shop and I'm like, this is, this is cool. This is funny. It's a funny song. Mm -hmm. like, could do well, mm -hmm. you know, so you guys are buds, just buds. Yeah. It's yeah. not even a, it's not even a thing, but, um, getting my band onto a major label, you know, where we, I started talking with a producer who his manager uh, became the president of Electra, and he knew that I had a relationship with Macklemore, and just sort of. So lesser of, lesser oceans is the first Electra record, or was the first yeah. record on Electra? First record was independent release. Yeah, yeah. So this was the first time that we've. So this is a big deal for you, man. Yeah, no, it's it is. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like you've been sort of. You did that first record two thousand eight nine. It comes out seven or eight whenever. Right. And you've waited around and did some work and played some shows, but this is really the break here. Yeah, this record. Right. This is the one. Yeah, three. Uh, you ready? Four TV shows and it's major label. Yeah, it's four different. TV shows. But that was are the were you doing Macklemore song or yours? Ours. Both of yours. Yeah. Yeah. Whose album is that on? Mine. Um, Arrows is on Lesser Oceans and he's on it. So we did Good Morning America. Uh, How'd that do? Did you get a bump from that? Um, yeah, we sold a lot. It's great. <laughs> we sold way more than... Than Fences? Yeah, fuck, fuck yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. Well, congratulations on your journey. Thank you, man. It's good talking to you. Mm -hmm. You're not sad, are you? No, I'm fine. I just need to go home and unpack my boxes. <laughs> you just moved. I just moved out. I, I was there for one day, and I, I go home tonight. And this, you got a new girlfriend? Yeah, she's uh, Abby. She's the girl in the Arrows video. Okay. Falling in love is good, buddy. You can still pull it off. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> Too old. How old are you? 31. <laughs> good for you, man. I hope that I wish you the most success with this thing. Thank you, man. All right, buddy. Again, Fences, new record, Lesser Oceans, comes out tomorrow, May 10th. And now, back to Boston, folks. Dan Zanes, man. Dan Zanes, he's on tour this spring. You can go to danzanes.com to find out more. This is one of the only times on WTF that I can say you should bring your whole family to these shows. 
Now let's talk to Dan. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Zanes. From the the funny thing is, is that I know you from the Del Fuegos. Yeah, man, another lifetime though, really. I know, but it it, it, it was. I mean, I just had you in the house, and I'm listening. And you're listening to that music, and you haven't heard that in how long? Probably, really. A long, long time. You know. A decade, couple, couple decades. <laughs> I mean, but you did, you did do some other Del Fuego's records, right? We, like you did one in in the two thousands. No, well, we, you know, I did something with, yeah, we did something. We got together. We had yeah. a reunion tour for a couple of weeks. Yeah, we made a an EP. Yeah, along the way, which is, you know, it was nice for it was nice for all of us on a social interpersonal level. Right, we're friends. Are you? Yeah, everyone's cool. Everyone's very cool these days. You know, everybody. There's life after rock and roll for everybody, and it was nice for my brother and I because you know he didn't write any of the songs when we were. I wouldn't let him. You know, yeah, basically <laughs> when you were kids. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. You know, what if he turned out to be better than me? <laughs> <laughs> you just cornered the whole band. It's all you. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it's nice. He wrote some songs on the EP, and you know, we played. And in the good, you know, the best part about it was the world wasn't waiting for us. You know, people hadn't been standing around. With <laughs> I was dead. <laughs> well, where were you, man? We Sorry, used buddy. You in Sorry, Minneapolis. man. <laughs> really, no one showed up. Yeah, a couple of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's why it's hard to go back. Yeah, as it and you know what, as it should be, because if if it had been a big success, we would have been tempted to keep doing it. And life after the Del Fuegos has been better for every one of us. You know, all four of us have gone well, on I, to better things. Well, I mean, I was in Boston. I was there through most of the eighties. Yeah, right. And when I was in college, you know, you guys were playing block parties. I mean, when did you guys start playing? Beginning of the eighties, right? We moved to town. So yeah. where'd you come from? How how did it all transpire? Because I mean that, that I mean that band was a good band. There was a lot of things going on in Boston, but where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Hampshire. Really? Yeah, and I, I couldn't find anybody to play music with, so I went to college to try and meet some people that I could start. Where'd a band you go to with. college? Oberlin. That's a good school. Yeah, I was lucky to go there, man. Where, where is that place? It's in Ohio. Right. Yeah, it was it was a nice place. It was a half conservatory, half liberal arts and I went there, you know, I really I didn't go to get an education, although I would have been a nice place for it. But yeah. I went to start a band and the the first day in the breakfast line I saw a guy that I, I kinda remembered from high school and I went up and I talked to you him. You knew him from high school? Yeah. I was uh, you know, lucky enough to go away to school for a couple of years. Where's that? Where'd you go then? Andover. 
Phillips Academy. Oh, that Phillips Academy? Yeah, that's, that's fancy. Where, yeah, that's where George W. Bush went. You went there? Did you go there all through high school? No, two years. Two years. That's fancy, man. Yeah, hey, I'm. I've been. I've been blessed, man. <laughs> what do you come from? What What part of the aristocracy? <laughs> no part. He... That's the crazy thing. <laughs> Is it just you and your brother? And we have a sister in between us. Yeah. And you grew. And your your folks were from New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. New England wasps. Yeah, man. So what was the old man doing? What did he do? Um, my old man was. You know, he he always wrote. He always wrote. He's been married five times, so he, that was a lot of what he was doing. But you know, dealing with the ladies. Yeah, but he always wrote. You know, they split up when I was when I was around six. Your parents. Yeah, and, and then he went on. How? Which wife was that? Two. That was the second wife. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Now you and your brother from the same mom. Yeah. Are all yeah. the kids from the same mom? Um, we have some half brothers and sisters on either now. side. Yeah, <laughs> he has big family. So he was a writer. <laughs> He, yeah, you know, he would teach, he would write, he would do, you know, he never, um, he never did, you know, it never, it never worked out for him the way right. uh, he would have liked it to, you know, right. and I think, sure. I think that's, I think there's a kind of a family history of that, you know. Of it not working out the way they would have liked it to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of time, you know, a lot of us- Being diplomatic. <laughs> the lifestyle, let's just say the lifestyle, you know. Stuff being a poet or whatever, <laughs> was he a poet? poet and yeah you know whatever but but here's the thing you know that's and he he's still alive you know so i yeah. try and you know and, and i i admire something about him very much which i didn't realize until much later on in, in you know as an adult yeah um i admire that you know no matter what his fortunes were you know and no matter what kind of troubles he was having you know on the personal side in his life he always wrote he wrote every day mm -hmm. you know he did he did his thing every day whether people wanted to read it or publish it or anything he always wrote yeah so it's you know i, I really uh that's a heavy thing it is heavy man it's heavy when you know whatever your relationship is with your dad but you go in and out with these guys and then you know you get to a certain age where you you, you gotta just you know look at the good things yeah. And then say like, all right, well, there's just one part of his personality that seems to be a good thing, and I and I have a little of that, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you guys get along now? Yeah, we do. You know, we went years and years with no relationship, and then um, angrily. I think it was anger, you know, was, and I had the, you know, I had the the option. I could, I had the opt out feature, and so I I chose <laughs> yeah. to exercise the opt out, which I did, and and you know, and he. And I was, you know, and then I had my own, you know, I had my own lifestyle challenges. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I was in a rock and roll band. That seemed to me the perfect job for, because I, I thought the lifestyle was was attractive. Did he have a job job? Did anyone work in the family? Did it was you? He just was a teacher? He, he did, yeah, he did some teaching. Yeah. And, uh, that was mostly what he did. He, and I, you know, and I can admire that just in, you know, I can admire anybody yeah, who sure. can teach. It's a big well, thing. Well, it seems like you're kind of ended up there. In I'm, a way, I'm coming around to it. That's right, man. I feel like I'm I'm a more of a teacher now, doing this early childhood stuff, um, and especially in the last couple of years, you know. So. To me, it's a fascinating transition, and it couldn't have been necessarily easy to 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 sort of figure out. Let's see if we can get there by talking about it. So you go to Oberlin when you're studying what? I I think I would have been a religion a religion major. Really. I didn't know, you know. You, 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 so you don't remember, but you, you got an idea that might have been what you were interested in? That looked like a good thing to me at the time. It seemed mysterious, and it seemed like it was uh, maybe multicultural or something. You know, I came from the white monoculture. Right. So, so all of a sudden, and I didn't know anything about the world. Anything I knew about the world, I learned from listening to records. So it was a kind of a limited 
you know worldview that I had. So, well, when did you start sort of focusing on music? Long before, like in your childhood? Yeah, I started playing when I was eight. I mean, really? I, I knew that was going to be it. I had no plan B. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm very familiar with that with that disposition. <laughs> Some people would call it stupid, but we call it creative. <laughs> <laughs> it was from the get go. So you you had a guitar with a little nylon stringer. Uh, no, it was a um, it was an airline electric strings. That was your first guitar. An airline. An airline. Yeah. What are you listening to when you're eight? Uh, How old are you? My age? A little uh, older. I'm fifty two. I'm fifty one. Fifty one. Oh, all right. So we're in the same game. We yeah. missed the sixties for most practical purposes. Right. Right. We had to sort of play catch up for our entire life. <laughs> like, did you ever think about where, what the which music came down at you and why? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I think being up in New Hampshire, at the, you know, and tuning in in the, you know, very late '60s, we had been in Canada for a little while, so you know, the music up in Canada was was tremendous. Ian and Sylvia, mm-hmm. when I was about, you know, they got divorced when I was up in Canada. We were in Canada. So what are they a folk unit? Ian and Sylvia, yeah, yeah great, great Canadian uh, male female duo. They, you know, people said in the early '60s when Ian Tyson, who was the male voice in the, yeah. in the group would walk through the crowd at a festival bob dylan would step aside you know it was a heavyweight thing oh yeah, yeah. tyson was they were big gordon lightfoot gordon lightfoot was up there so you know it was, it was good in the band the band they were still up there no but they were you know they were ronnie no, hawkins and that and it was uh he was they were playing with ronnie hawkins weren't they yeah but this was you know this is the point where they they'd they were starting their thing you know so the late 60s early right. 70s so the band was I mean, that was really my group, you know. The, the band? The band. That was, I just, I heard everything in their music, and I still do. You know? It is, it's all in there. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of their thing. Yeah. No one quite understood how they did it, but they did it. Yep. It seems like, it, you know, that sound could only come from a, a certain collection of individuals. It's like a snowflake. There's it's, only one. It's bizarre, right? Yep. And so many people tried to do it, and they just couldn't do it. You you can't make it happen. It's just gonna it's gonna happen or it's not. You know those they weren't voices. all Canadian though, right? Were they? Everybody but Levon. Levon, right? Yeah. All right. So you're uh, you're at Oberlin, vaguely studying religion because yep. you don't know anything about the world. Were you inherently interested in religion? Did you have a spiritual side, or you just? I think we all do. Well, yeah, you know, I know, but, but, I know, Dan. Let's try to break <laughs> no, it down. Were you right. like a were you a, a godless wanderer, or you just were like I don't got to choose something. I think it just seemed so mysterious, you know, it just seemed mysterious. And, and it was like the, the, it was the window into the world because it, it seemed like, and I can dig it now, you know, like I wanted to write, I wanted to read. I went to, so I went to this fancy high school and I came out, I never read a book by a black writer. You know what I mean? So my Did you world, do well at Andover? I mean, were you? I did okay. You yeah. know, my uncle, my uncle ran the art gallery. That was how, and wow. he, you know, that was, I had, I had some access you he know, ran the, the art gallery at the school? Yeah. They had an art gallery? It's like a college. Oh, this right. This is crazy. Yeah. Oh, okay, so yeah, they had a yeah, collection because yeah. it's like that old waspy yep. infrastructure. Yeah, People yeah, giving yeah. gifts and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. So, um, but you know, I came out of there and I had never read a book by a black writer. Right. So, you know, even going to that school, um, you know, my worldview is, is so limited. You right. Know, so but you must have got something from the, from the music. I mean, you must have been listening to blues or something. I was listening to music, yeah. You know, I mean, I did, I liked oldies rock and roll. I mean, that was really my thing. Like know? oldies, like uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valance. Love Buddy Holly, love doo-wop, 
do oh that oh so the doo-wop groups so yeah. you're familiar with some expressions of of at least black culture from rock and roll oh yeah definitely yeah. but i didn't you know but i didn't but that's not enough to you know yeah that's not enough to get you in a conversation with another person yeah no 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 it's like yeah uh, what do you know about black culture chuck berry's good <laughs> Howlin' Wolf could lay it down. Right? <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. it. Then what, what can anybody say to that? <laughs> yeah, that guy was good. So I don't know, man. I'm, so you know, religion I, seemed like a portal. Seemed like it, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't even think about it that hard. What I was really thinking about was starting a band. And I did, you know, on the first day we started. And that was with Tom Lloyd. And he and I played together for the next 10 years. Was the band always the Del Fuegos when you were at Oberlin? Yeah. Where'd you get that name? Uh, we thought... It made us sound like an R and B group, and uh, which we thought we were, you know, funny enough. And then um, we thought uh, Tierra del Fuego was a vacation land, you know, so which yeah. is not. <laughs> yeah. So that was it. That was the idea. Yeah, and and it was, you know, it was a nice thing because I think because I had been fortunate enough to go away to school a little bit, I wasn't as interested in hanging out with freshmen and partying. Right. And so a lot of the older cats would turn us on to music. You know, we were just hungry. We were hungry yeah. to hear whatever anybody could, could play for us. And so a lot of these older guys would, would play things for us, you know, just to see us flip out. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. we did. Well, that's the, that, that's the best thing. I mean, I talk to musicians a lot about that, that there's got to be somebody, you know, ahead of you that yeah. says, hey, have you heard the Velvet Underground? You're like, no. And then the next day, you're a different person. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it know? really works that way. It fucking does, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you're coming at music with this guy, with uh, with Lloyd. What's his first name? Tom. Tom Lloyd. And you guys are playing covers? A lot of covers. We're doing like what? Uh, Sam and Dave, tons of Chuck oh, So you Berry. are doing R&B. <laughs> yeah, we're trying. You know, but we don't even know how to tune our instruments. So Really? It's, yeah. So What's he play? Bass? Bass. Okay. Yeah. We had a drummer, a guy from England named Nick. And, um, you know, so we were trying to play some ska tunes. We were trying to play Guns of Navarone and uh, Phoenix City and some of these older ska tunes. And, um, but this is like, what year are you? So this is like 82? 80. 80. 80. Yeah. Okay. That's the first year of college. Right. Yep. And there's already shit going on. There's like, so you're, you're, you're already off, you're outside of the box. Yeah. Well, well Scott, it, not so much. I mean, Scott was kind of happening yeah that was coming back around yeah. but but um you know we did a lot of elvis presley tunes and um so when we moved when we moved to boston we we dropped out after a year at oberlin we just you know we knew <laughs> we knew we weren't long for that environment yeah. it wasn't going to help us and um and uh, so we we went to boston yeah and, and we showed up in boston and um you know it seemed like guys from Lynn and Medford everybody had a band but they're all singing in English accents I mean that was my impression at the time it was oh, punk who, rock and yeah who would that have been you know the guy that I think was really the you know the the greatest of, of them all was Jonathan Richmond yeah he was great see I missed I missed that I missed I mean that the first Modern Lovers record is like I still listen to it it's it's so sweet yeah. And like and like and he seemed I don't know that guy. Do you know him? I met him a bunch of times and I you know, the first time I met him was at a at a show somewhere and uh, I mean he was already out. I think he had moved out of town, he was touring around, he had made several records by the time we showed up, but I said, Man, you know, you changed my life and he said, Oh, well, how's your life doing now? <laughs> <laughs> and he seemed like he really cared. You know? <laughs> Made me feel so good. Well, it's interesting because, like, later, you know, after that Modern Lovers record, 
you know, a couple of records later, even, you know, his, he sort of was doing what you're kind of doing now. Yep. That, they, you know, he went back to uh, an innocence in the music. And it, there is, he seemed very genuine. I mean, even the modern lovers, you know, that, you know, you had this, this kid who, who, who's you know, being produced by John Cale. There's darkness all around him. And, and he somehow was able to find this, you know, very sweet and sensitive sound that influenced everybody. But he was not like one of these dark forces. No, man. And he was not, um, you know, I never, and I think this is why I liked him too, because I, you know, it's something I try and myself, you know, I like the idea. He, he was, he never was doing anything to be ironic. Right. And not sarcastic. Very earnest. Very earnest, but, but, <laughs> but funny, but he yeah. seemed like he, but in control of it too. Mm -hmm. And, um. No, I mean he was doing, he was doing children's music or all ages music, and never called it that. Right. And coming out of punk rock, you know, it just it just seemed to me, I, and I didn't think it was children's music. I just thought, well, here's this guy, and he's singing Wheels on the Bus. I mean, he's singing Wheels on the Bus. <laughs> yeah. And and he made it cool. And, <laughs> and why not? Yeah. Why man. wouldn't it be cool? You know, like so. All the barrier he had none of the barriers at all. He was just doing whatever was in his heart, and that's it's it's really kind of interesting because that's like you're talking after the first Modern Lovers record. Yep, yep. Because if you like, if you really think about that Modern Lovers record, you know he was dealing with like he, he was very sweetly and in a very sensitive almost childlike way dealing with some pretty gnarly shit on that record. Like she cracked. I'm yeah. sad. But you, you know, like that, and uh, like, um, what's the other one? Oh, the hospital where he visits it. When I, uh, you remember that song? Mm -hmm. Like all those songs are like this kid who's like in that scene where you got all these crazy girls around and like people who are having problems, and he's just maintaining. Yeah, and it sounds like you know people around him were just falling off the edge of the earth with drugs. Yeah. And, uh, he just was holding on to something that didn't really exist anymore, except in his heart it existed. And that, for me, that meant it existed. And it gave me a, you know, a feeling like, ah, oh, you know, I'm listening to oldies radio. I'm thinking back to some other time. And then this, but this guy actually knows that feeling. But yeah, <laughs> but, but it took you a while to come around to it, right? In the purer sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, all right, so you get there. So when you start playing... Like it was a different lineup. Were you, were you a trio for a while? Yeah. When you were playing in, in like block parties, like I remember that. Like I had a forty-five. Yeah, yeah. We what, had. What was that? Um, it was I can't sleep. And oh, I that's always, right. And I always call her back. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Forty-five. That was that was what made me like you guys. Was that forty-five? <laughs> what was that lineup? That was um, Steve Morell was playing drums, and then Tom and I were. You know, playing guitar and bass. So it's before you broke. Yeah, my brother was still in high school. He joined the band the day he graduated from high school. We want. My mother said, "You have to finish. <laughs> you got to graduate high school." Did you grow up playing guitars with him? No, he started. You know, after he moved out, went to high school, he started playing. And uh, what's the age difference? Four years. Okay, but you know, it just seemed like, and this is, I guess, the gift of punk rock. It was so much less about technical ability and just more about. He's the right guy. He'll yeah. grow into it. And I still feel like that's a valid way to do it. Didn't he have a nickname? Orc Boy. Orc Boy. That was... Yeah. I remember. Yeah. No, it was... Um, 
but that 45 was good for us you know and i think it captured some you know something about us and robert plant did an interview for mtv and they asked him who he liked and he said oh the, the del fuegos are my favorite u.s band really after and, the 45 <laughs> That's and a we, great moment. I heard about this after we had made our first record, and and some, yeah. I don't know how I did it, but I tracked him down. Yeah, and and someone set it up so that I could call him in his hotel room and right. talk to him. And I thought he was thinking about our our record, our LP. And yeah. he said, no, man, I I never heard it. You know, he yeah. didn't even care. But he heard the forty five. He had it on his jukebox at home. The forty five. Yeah, he just dropped your name. It was so nice. I did that with <laughs> Buffalo Tom once, like Buffalo Tom. I remember when I, like, I, oh, I remember what I was, I turned John Stewart on to Buffalo Tom, like, I think out in their second album or whatever. And then I saw in, uh, and he never heard him before. And then I saw him interviewed in a, in Rolling Stone. They said, what's your favorite new band? I'm like, Buffalo Tom. I'm like, I did that. I did that. I gave him that record. <laughs> nice. Did you know Janowitz? You know those guys? No. They were after of, you. Yeah, it was after my time. I moved out in 84, 85. I got married and moved to New York. So I, I was, I was still playing with the guys, but I was disconnected from the scene. Let's go. Let's go through it because you know there was a. You were guys were. It was sort of a big deal, the Del Fuegos. I mean, you know, there was a lot of push. I mean, there was a lot of heat and whatnot. Yeah. So you guys are making the rounds, and how how does it unfold? Who are the who are your contemporaries when when you guys are playing and where you're putting your catalog together? Like before that first record, is, is it is it Scruffy and those guys? Wasn't that your time? Yeah, those guys are, those guys were going by then, and um, man, till Tuesday already broke it, didn't they? Yeah, I remember running into Amy Mann because she had a group called Young Snakes, so really good. It was like sharp, kind of angular pop music, almost yeah. like Wire or something yeah. like that. Oh yeah. Know? And uh, we used to open for them, and and um, she had a guitar player, and he would tune our instruments for us because you know he he just knew that it would be a much better evening if he helped us out. <laughs> guy named Doug, I think. Yeah. And I remember running into Amy, and she said, "Yeah, I'm starting a new group. We're gonna be we're making pop music." You know, and yeah. she she was very cool about it, and I just thought, "Wow, that's a you know that's amazing that you would." Not only decide to do that, but then you're you're so free about admitting it, you know. Because yeah, yeah. to me, I I would never, you know, right. I would never say that. Yeah, yeah. Know? Like we're gunning for the big time. Yeah, and she did it, and yeah. I just I so admired that, you know, she was so clear. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are just you're doing your your rock and roll music, <laughs> but you were fortunate in that, like your sound. I know that against sort of like post punk and all that stuff, but there was a movement. Because you guys are definitely roots music. I mean, even the thing we just listened to—that first record, uh, "Nervous and Shaken." I mean, that that harkens back to that oldie thing too. I mean, it's just straight up. It's not. It's there's a little of a, a of a rockabilly thing in there, but you were doing something else, man. But yeah. it was definitely sourced in that. Yeah, that's. I mean, and it. We weren't. We weren't interested in breaking new ground. We were just. You know, we were. We're happy to be an American band, and and the the label that we liked was out here, Slash Records. Yeah, and so. All we did was make tapes and send them to Slash. We didn't even send them to other labels. We had no idea what we were doing. You know, we just thought you keep writing, you make tapes, and you send them out. And you don't you don't sit around and think, is this a good kick drum sound? You just make your music and you send it out. And they kept saying no, and then we'd send them another one, and they'd say no. How we'd many say, songs on there? Just one or two or. I don't know, three or four, whatever yeah, we yeah. could afford to record. When you, where were you recording? You'd go into a studio and do it, though? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And. Um, and so I think what happened was one day, um, so Ann were opening up for their band. So, you know, Dave Alvin, we'd go back to Slash and, you know, we'd open for the Blasters and Dave Alvin, we'd go back and he'd say, you know, these guys in Boston are good. You know, you might want to think about them or, 
Um, we opened a lot for X. Oh, did you? Yeah, Los Lobos, Green on Red. That was the scene, right? That was the root scene, right? Yeah. Slash was great. You know, it was a great label. X was great. The Dream Syndicate, man, those first couple albums are great. Yeah. Yeah. You open for those guys? Yep. All of them. You know, we'd open for every... They'd the all blasters. come... They'd play in the rat. We'd open for them. It was just a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just thought, well, these are our people. You know, this is, these are our contemporaries. We ha- we should be on that label. Yeah. And they kept saying no. And then I think what happened was um, T-Bone Burnett was up in the office one day. This is the story I heard. Yeah. And T-Bone Burnett was up there and he picked up one of our tapes and put it in the tape player and he said oh these, these guys are good why don't you sign them and they yeah. said oh yeah really and he said yeah and so they said okay we'll sign them you never did you ever get to confirm it with t-bone i never met him <laughs> he's like sort of the he's like the cataloger he's like the curator of american roots music at this point yeah he right does, he does a nice job yeah man <laughs> well what's that what, what was it oh brother where art thou that soundtrack that was good that was mind-blowing man yeah like for whatever we know in our mind, that catalog of music that everyone knows, there's thousands of other yeah. things out there in this in America that just never made the cut. Yeah. So you know you gotta go track that shit down, man. Oh man, you know, and the thing that the thing too, I mean, I spend I spend a lot of time every day now just trying to think about what it means to be white in America. You know, yeah, it seems to, to be a thing that you're thinking. It's a big thing I'm thinking. I'm trying to figure it out, and it's almost like thinking about it talking about it reading about it in conversation you know with white people and people of color you know it's like i feel freedom for the first time because i feel like i can see the world as it is for the first time and um and so when i look back and i and which is essentially it's a country built for dudes like us it's built for white people white men in particular but you know really made for the white person and i think about you know, I had a record by the uh, the Crew Cuts. Yeah. Uh, Shaboom. Yeah. And they had Earth Angel on there. I mean, this was black music. Yeah. But it was redone by these white guys. You yeah. know, and I didn't know any different. Right. And so a lot of the music that I was listening to was black music, but it was uh, had been appropriated and was being sold, to, you know, sold to the world. And, um, you know, this stuff, it, it really, it, it made it, you know, when I look back now, there was a subtle message underneath all that that I was absorbing and didn't even know, you know, so I, it's almost like I'm reexamining my whole, my whole relationship with rock music because of that, you know, yeah. so when you say the music that we don't, we don't hear, yeah, get down to what a lot of that really is, yeah, and, you know, even I love Elvis, and I'll always love Elvis, but really, you know, yeah, sure, man, <laughs> Elvis was you know on the on there's the a backs. different there's a different hound dog, <laughs> yeah, there sure is, yeah, man, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they were very aware of that shit too, I mean, the record companies were very aware of it, I mean, you know that you know documented it kind of interestingly well was in that John Waters movie. Where, you know, there was just definitely, there were just two cultures. There was, mm. you know, there was the, the, the real black music and then the filter that they fed to white people through white people on the TV. Like, you know, I mean, I think that Pat Boone covered Tutti Frutti. I mean, there was a time where I, I've heard, I've heard, uh, I think it might be in that documentary that uh, uh, the Chuck Berry one, that Keith Richards thing where, where you know, they all, you know, that Keith was working with Chuck to do that concert. Mm-hmm. And they were talking to uh, to all of them. And they were like, they, they were, there were these other acts that would do their music because they were too, you know, too, it was too much. Yeah. Too much black, too much energy, too much freedom in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. There's some, some crazy gatekeeping that goes on. And the Always. You know, cultural gatekeeping is Always. intense. 
Yeah, I just got a box set from a label in Cleveland that I never knew about. Bodie uh-huh. Recording Company, Cleveland, Ohio. So they put out this sex, six record set. I never heard any of it, and it's amazing because it was all <laughs> like a lot of it was in house, and they were initially a gospel label, but everything that was happening out in the world was coming through there, and they just record after record. I'm like, how, how did I never know about this? Why would I? Yeah. How the fuck was I going to know about that? Wow, that's the you know what I mean. That's these things I. Every day, you know, I, it's clear to me in some other way just how, because I, I feel like, you know, if white people don't talk about how we're affected by racism, we're not, we're never going to get fully motivated to do anything to change it. But when you, you know, when I think about the price that we pay, you know, the price that I pay, you know, when there's that, you know, when the gatekeeping is so intense and um, the isolation you know, the isolation that we're living in. So we're not going to hear about, we're not right. going to be exposed to so much stuff. And I know like, you know, for example, coming down from New Hampshire and being in Boston, I remember somebody played me Grandmaster Flash and the Wheels of Steel. And I'm listening to this 12-inch and I'm going, man, I never heard anything like this. This is crazy. And we're living on the edge of Roxbury. We're living in the South End at the time where the gentrification is just starting up. I have no idea what gentrification is, but, you know, we're we're a part of that. You know, we're into Brownstone, the band. But meanwhile, so there's all this incredible hip-hop being made. Down the street. Down the street. But, you know, I've internalized so much fear, you know, of black men, black yeah. people, that the idea of going and finding it and, you know, making a connection in the black community and getting inside this music, it was, it couldn't have been further from my mind. It was just, you know. Couldn't do it. And Boston's like, really is one of the most segregated cities in the world. Yeah, Boston is a rough town. For crazy, that. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, if it weren't, it's like, look, I spent a lot of time there. You know, I got, I got some love for the city. But man, I, there's, I've never seen a city hide their black people like Boston. Yeah, no, it's, it's really. Pushed uh, out, man. Yep. You know, what is it? Like, it's Roxbury. And then, uh, you know, the Mattapan and Dorchester. Dorchester projects, you know, and then there was like, there's that other place where there, there was like way out. It was crazy, man. Crazy. Just didn't see it. Yeah. So, I, so that, you know, I feel like when so I look So now back, you're educating yourself. You're integrating. Like you're doing some records now that are very carefully uh, orchestrated in a world music almost way. I think it's it's a natural outgrowth of having a you know a wide group of friends you know a wide group of people that I have now. come to know in New York yeah now well know. okay so going back so okay so you get signed to Slash and they put out the first record yeah and you got a hit we had press we had good press but right. we didn't we didn't have anything quite like a hit yet but the second record we did yeah and um, but the first record was. Uh, you know what happened was the first record came out and we started getting good press and touring and all that stuff. The first record. Yeah, and then we were approached by Miller Beer. Well, this is like a good story. So so the first record comes out and the second record hadn't come out when you were approached by Miller? No, no, we were working on it. And okay. They, and they approached Because I remember us. this, this was controversial. Yes. At the time. Yeah, and part of it, I mean... Well, tell the story. Okay, so we were approached by Miller Beer. Yeah. We we needed money for amps. This seemed good. We and in our minds we thought, you know, we've been advertising beer for several years now <laughs> and have been paid for it. So it seemed like a win-win. And uh, they, they said, wanted you to do a TV commercial. TV commercial with Tim Newman, the guy who had done those great ZZ Top videos. Yeah. It just all seemed like they're doing it the right way. We knew that Elvis had done donut commercials. We knew about the, you know, the Coca-Cola commercials that Otis Redding had done. I mean, we just thought this is part of rock history eventually. So you're rationalizing it. Of course. But it was a, it was a struggle. 
You're like, there was this sort of like, should we or shouldn't we or no? Not so much. We <laughs> <laughs> needed, needed money for amps. We needed money. We didn't. We had no idea what was about to happen. And what happened was we made a, a commercial and it debuted during Live Aid. So everybody is gathering together to raise money for those in need in Africa, except for this one band from Boston. They're just selling beer in between acts. <laughs> so that was what did it? That was the, That's what kicked it off. And, and it turned into, you know, so the climate at the time was really about, um, you know, g- goodwill and yeah. um, altruistic movement. Right. And we're not doing any of that. We're just selling beer because we needed our amp money, you yeah. know? And yeah. um, so, you know, it wasn't that, we, I mean, it hurt It hurt that critics started um, bashing us for us because critics had always been really good to us. So that, that, felt a, that felt bad. But what really hurt was that other bands would start saying, oh, I'll never do a Miller beer commercial. You, know? there, you were a sellout. <laughs> we are total sellouts at that point. Meanwhile, you know, fast forward 20, 25 years. Now, if you can get your sure, music in a commercial. You you're doing great. They, they literally like, saw the Miller beer commercial, man. Nice. <laughs> but back then, it's amazing what 20 years could do. Back then, it's like, fucking Del Fuegos are sellouts, man. And didn't they shoot it at the Rat, too? Oh man, the paradise! Oh, the, the paradise. paradise! Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I gotta say, I don't, I don't look back and regret any of it because I feel like for me, if we had sold any more records, sold any more concert tickets, made any more money, I don't know if I'd be alive because I wasn't built to handle the lifestyle of it. So, but the re- but the second record came out after this Miller beer fiasco, and you had what a, a minor hit. Well, what happened was the 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 commercial. We're finishing up the record. The commercial comes out during Live Aid. We're sitting in the studio. We're watching it for the very first time, and it says the Del Fuegos, Boston, Mass. And then the commercial rolls, and we said, "Hey, let's call the record Boston, Mass. <laughs> It'll be a tie-in." <laughs> right. Oh, that's the big idea, huh? <laughs> yeah. And then the second thought was, "Oh, and that'll be cool for Boston too." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys have big plans before the hammer dropped. <laughs> oh man so you know what the record sold really well people i mean in the midwest it wasn't a big deal for people yeah 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 people what was the hit um i still want you and don't run wild were the two yeah yeah, 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 yeah. and we you know we tried to make a bigger sounding record and all that stuff and and who produced that mitchell from who was he from he had done um he had just finished doing crowded house Uh and he had done our first record with us and um his first record was our first record, and he, you know, so he was he had done a soundtrack for a movie called Cafe Flesh uh-huh. that came out on Slash. Yeah, and it was an art film that I think the financiers um, sort of turned into a soft core porn f- movie, right? You know, to see, try and get their <laughs> yeah. money back yeah, yeah, somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so you do the second record, and you do all right, but okay, so you don't got any respect in town, right? But, you know, so what is that? Where are you at at that point? Um, So we start going to Europe more often. Um, We start hanging out out here. We start hanging out with Tom Petty more often, which is really fun. He's the best. We love Tom Petty. Best. Just love Tom Petty. If there's anybody that, like, not not like the band, but in terms of being grounded in American music, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah. Nice guy, huh? Really nice guy. And we... um, you know, I think my brother was one the more, um, you know, like able to make that connection easy. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it was, but 
I just remember one night my brother calls me up in the hotel room. We're staying out here, and he said we had, we had invited Tom Petty to the show. Yeah, you know, just like through through um, Maria McKee. Okay, you know, and oh, I love her. Just, That's another yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, man, you talk to her still? I haven't seen her for a long time. I wonder how she's doing, man. She's doing well. Last time I saw her, but it was maybe eight or nine years ago. But good she's, voice. Oh, she's great. Oof. So we met her, and we she had done something with Tom Petty. We said, "Hey, will you invite him to our show?" And um, I can't remember the club out here, but um, so he didn't show up. But then my brother calls me up in the middle of the night. He said, guess who just called me? Tom Petty. Tom Petty called him in his hotel room and said, sorry, I couldn't make it to the show, but if you guys want to come out to the house sometime, that'd be cool. Yeah. You know, just what a, you know, it was, it was an amazing gentlemanly thing to do. So and you went out there? We did, you know, we and we went out several times and one time, you know, and I mean, for me, I just I had, I had so much love for Tom Petty that yeah. I would basically just sit there and watch the other guys talk to him. <laughs> I couldn't do a thing. <laughs> so now, what is wearing you down when you say you couldn't handle the lifestyle? Were you getting out of control, or um, yeah, alcohol? You know, for yeah. sure, alcohol was a big part of it, and you yeah. know, all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, and people were you seeing people drop? Um, not at that point. Not yeah. at that. It still feels like everything's cool. You know, we toured, we opened for In Excess for a couple of months, just as Listen Like Thieves came out. We toured the country with, as yeah, their yeah. opening act. And so they, I mean, they're Australian guys living the life, making it all look like it's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for the four hours you saw them. Right. <laughs> You're not waking up with them. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but, um, you know, when it started taking its toll was going into the third record. We showed up. And, and, you know, I hadn't written any songs. Yeah. And I just started thinking, you know, the the arrogance of whatever we do is going to be fine, man. You know, people love us. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was the third record? It was called Stand Up. Okay. Yeah, it couldn't have been further from the truth, you know, but that's what it was <laughs> called. And and this is the other hip thing. We thought if we made it so it had a, a die cut on the back so you fold it out and you could actually stand the record up on the table. That'd be clever. Yeah, but it was right when CDs hit, so no one was really buying it. <laughs> Rough timing you've had a couple of, yeah, yeah, between Rite Aid and CDs hitting. So that record didn't sell? No, and it and it wasn't it wasn't a good record. It wasn't a good record to play live. Who was the band then? Was it was it before everything got shitty? No, it was the same band. Um, but but there was a lot of tension. And um, what I, was the tension about? Tension is about my brother was starting to want to write songs, you know, and um, and I think the the tension that's the natural result of things not going the way you want them to go. Yeah. You know, there's that that kind of youth, everybody's got it youthful upswing, and then all of a sudden, no matter how hard you try, I think you're starting to just dip down, and the you know the critical, you know, I think the 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 critics turning on us, you know, I mean it, that it affected us. Sure, we weren't, we, weren't, we were sensitive. Of course, we're all sensitive. Yeah, <laughs> who the fuck is that guy? You know, it's a, and then you can't put it into perspective. It's just at that time it was important because there was a limited music press. So you know, but you know, when it comes down to it, usually it's just one asshole, you know, sitting at a typewriter. I mean, who the fuck, you know, that's going to dictate the future of your, you know, year. And the crazy thing was, a lot of them were guys we knew and liked. Right, I know. It's <laughs> worse. And they're, they act like, because they think they're doing it right. Because they can never just blow smoke up your ass. They got to be like, oh, here's some good things, but not the same. It's not the same <laughs> as they used to be. And there's the bad things. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can dig it on now. You know, it's 
it, it, it's kind of you know now it's there's been enough distance that it's all it's all kind of funny and like i said i'm grateful you know i don't wish i don't wish anything had gone differently because i learned some huge lessons that and i got to learn them while i was in my 20s but you plowed ahead i mean what the band broke up or didn't it did yeah but then we we made one more record with adam roth and joe donnelly taking the place of my brother and woody geesman and that was smoking in the fields yeah uh-huh. Yeah, and Woody Geesman went on to start an organization called Right Turn up in uh, in New England to help uh-huh. people in the entertainment community who needed help with drugs and alcohol. Oh yeah, I was like, hey Woody, man, where were you when we needed <laughs> hey, you? Right, you're a little late. <laughs> <laughs> and so. everybody everybody landed on their feet soberly and okay. Yeah, man, it's, it's unbelievable. What's you your know? brother doing? My brother got a PhD and uh, went to work at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Got a, landed a huge job there. And he works for Little Steven now. He runs Little Steven's organization called, it's like Rock and Roll Forever or something like that. Uh-huh. And it's to bring um, rock and roll education um, into the classroom. So developing curriculum. And it's it's incredible because there's so much you can fold into the yeah. history of rock and roll. So what about uh, what about Springsteen? Were you a Springsteen fan? Oh, yeah, of course. And he, he came and um, sang with us one time, which is also, I mean, got a crazy. lot of amazing, amazing stories about, you know, connecting with people that really meant a lot to us you know but but uh the boss is you know he's great and coolest right but him and petty that's fucking massive cool yeah now those guys said solid I think they set a good example and and you know whenever we would see the way they operated off stage it was always just as you would want to believe you know yeah, yeah, real yeah. gentlemen and, and very very um uh, 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 encouraging and you know encouraging to people coming up you know we always just felt like these guys they kind of cared you know they cared that we loved music the way we did and they wanted to see the best for us and it was you know I mean that meant a lot yeah it meant a lot so so when everything like how bad off were you when everything fell away like at that time like after like 1989 when you moved like you moved to New York earlier than that right but, yeah mid 80s I was but, I was married and right so stuff. you were you were living the life but you were okay right I mean I was you know I thought I was okay yeah I thought I was okay but I was um I was you know a lot a lot of the men on my side of the family have always had you know have had the their, boozy thing <laughs> The boozy thing. That sounds nice. Yeah. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, the yeah. boozy thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, this goes back a ways. It's a, it's a tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was living the tradition, you know, yeah. and, and um, and, and you know, and I, and I think in that feeling, like, man, this this isn't me. Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not that much of an idiot. You yeah. know, why am I always acting like one? Right. And um, and you know, so I I started to feel like I, you know, there's a lot of pain. Yeah. Just a lot, a lot of pain. Right. And um. And but I couldn't, you know, and and this is a funny thing too, man. I couldn't see, I couldn't see life without it, and that's you know, I couldn't imagine life without it. So I'm right. holding on tight to the thing that's killing me. Right. You know, I don't want to let go of the one thing that's just doing me in. You know, spiritually, physically, mentally, everything. Yeah. Um, I don't want to let it go, and um, but uh, but I did, you know, and uh, and that's I, where Adam helped you out. That's where Adam helped me out, you know, and then you know, and a lot of. Um, hundreds and hundreds sure, since man. then you know yeah, but, yeah. Um, so you know I thought that's you know I thought letting go of that would be when my life would end but it was actually you know when my life began in any meaningful sense so, yeah you know so when I say I'm, I'm grateful to be alive I'm you know you know yeah I do I'm know. serious man yeah yeah <laughs> I definitely know yeah like yeah and and so then when did you start the um the new 
career in you know playing music for families and for younger people i mean when did what was so you're sobered up and i know that first year is not easy you're a little nutty a lot of things (laughs) like adjusting to who you really are but when did that when did that sort of evolve well i just thought you know i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm going to change the lifestyle here and, and put on my solo record. It'll, what'll it take? Six months, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but it, it didn't, God had a different plan. Uh-huh. Dan's plan and God's plan didn't didn't line up yeah. on that one. A lot of ego in Dan's plan. Dan, Dan's plan was all about Dan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wrote it though and I liked it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I authored what I considered to be a very good plan for myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And then what 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 did uh, God's plan dictate? God's plan was for me to lay low for a while and, and figure out, you know, how to how to say hello when I'm when I'm buying a quart of milk in the store. How to say hello. Thank you and hello and please and thank you. Yeah. All the stuff, you know, how to be you know, just a person on the street and yeah. not be, you know, without, you know, without anything attached to it, just to be part of the human race, right. basically, and and turn the eyeballs out, you know, because right. I'd always, you know, I didn't realize how selfish I was right. and how much my relationship with rock music was just about, you know, getting getting some applause for myself. Yeah, and I was sure. really, I mean, I love music and I love music making, but it was a very ego-feeding proposition right. for right. me. So I started... Um, you know my wife wanted to get pregnant so that was a science project in itself you know and and um i was um and i started listening to music i just i stopped listening to rock music and i started listening to bluegrass music and 40s and 50s um black gospel music and jamaican music and the thing that i was seeing and hearing was that these musics were all connected to some kind of community you know they weren't just isolated groups doing their thing they were connected to communities and I just thought that's what it used to be like in Boston in the beginning. And then slowly the wall went up between us and the audience. And, I, and, right. and if I have to do that again, make music, I'm not going to do it. If it's connect, if it's disconnected from the people in the room, I'm not going to do it. What's right. the point? Right. You know, I, I want to I get back to that, you know, to the social piece. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and so that's on my mind, you know, and then my daughter is born and, um, and I started thinking about the music that I grew up with, you know, the the folk music, because I wanted to make music. I wanted to, well, here's the thing, man. She's coming back from the hospital, and I'm thinking. Your wife or your, my, oh, your my, daughter. With my daughter and my wife, we're in the car, and I'm yeah. thinking, we're going to get home. What's the first song Anna's going to hear? And I'm, and I'm thinking of what record am I going to play for her? It never crossed my mind. I'm a musician. I could play the song myself. Right. I, ne- I didn't, you know, I played a record for her. Um, what was it? It was the Jamaican, I uh, know, it was um, the Melodians singing Little Nut Tree. That's uh-huh. a Jamaican rock steady yeah. song. And uh-huh. um, really good choice. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> that ego. It's great, uh, man. I, Dan I, picked a good one. I hit that out of the park. <laughs> She's still thanking me. Oh, yeah? 20 years later. She's um, 20? Yeah, she turns 20 next week. Yeah. She a musician? Uh, she can play. She's right. a film photographer, though. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you played her that. I played her that, and I started thinking about, you know, I went to the store. I thought, this is going to be a shared experience, that we're going to listen to music together, and we're both going to connect to it emotionally. So it'll be the updated version of the Lead Belly records I listened to, and the Pete Seeger, and the Woody Who'd you Guthrie. listen to those two with, by yourself? 
Um, when I was a kid, you know, when I was, when I was, I could go to the library and take records out, yeah. you know, and so I, I got into folk music, you know I mean? And to me, doo-wop was folk music. Right. Know? It was like the extension of Pete Seeger. Right. They were all connected in some way, but, huh. but Lead Belly was really, you know, my guy when I was learning to play the guitar. Yeah. He was, um, he was, he was the inspiration for just, you know, when I thought back to it and I thought, what, it, you know, what was the music what 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 was the sound from my early years that I really carry with me up till right now when I'm thinking about my daughter? And it was really Lead Belly, you know, more than the band, more than anything else, because it was one man playing in a unique style. Heavy. A mix of old and new songs yeah. from a variety of traditions. Yeah. Playing his own way, different every time. It's yeah. Lead Belly. Yeah. You know, he's... he's He's the cat. He did the, te- you know, he really did a template for, for what I've been trying to do ever since with, with this all ages music. Oh yeah. And it sounds like it was recorded in the kitchen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'd picture myself standing there with Lead Belly, you know. He played 12 string? Yeah. He's yeah. the king of Big the 12 sound. string yeah, guitar. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I just thought, oh man, there's going to be all this, you know, like the updated version of the Folkways record. So I went into Tower Records and it seemed like everything was connected to a movie or a TV show. Yeah. It seemed very commercial. And um, and then I found children's music that was good, but I didn't, I wasn't thinking about children's music because I wanted to connect to it emotionally too, mm-hmm. you know? And so what I was noticing was that, that my neighbors would all, you know, they would go to Tower, they would they would pick out some stuff they wouldn't dig it and they'd just start playing Beatles records right which is fine right. Beatles are great but you know what a lot of their songs are songs of romantic love and they're not going to resonate that way for a three year old so yeah. I wanted so I thought well maybe you can't have all ages music anymore And but let me try and make it and I, I made a cassette tape um, to give out to my neighbors yeah and, and uh, this is in, we're in Brooklyn this I hadn't quite moved to Brooklyn. I was in the West Village of Manhattan. Okay, and I uh, made this cassette tape, and Cheryl Cheryl Crow lived around the corner, so she sang on a song. And Suzanne Vega had just had a baby, so she and she was married to Mitchell Froom, and um, your producer, yeah, from the old days, yeah, yeah. So so we're all hanging out. So Suzanne sang on a song, and I I was meeting West Indian women in the park. They were they're there as babysitters. They were teaching me songs. So really? You know, yeah. So everybody's coming in and doing different um different stuff. And yeah. I want to make it sound like the neighborhood. Right. And um so it's like the my first, you know, slight foray into, you know, like I'm like a kind of a multicultural presentation where I don't have to be the front and center piece, but I can pull everybody together and let's see if, what kind of sound we can come up with. Right. And uh, and I want it to sound like it's made in a house. Yeah. And um, so I made this cassette tape and I had finally made a solo record, you know, at that yeah. time. And yeah. No one cared about the solo record, but everyone wanted more copies of this cassette tape. So again, you know, Dan's plan was the solo record does really well and I just go and I tour for the rest of my life. And, and you can you bankroll know. your little project if you want to. If I want to, but yeah, it was just a one-off, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think, you know, God's plan was, you know, why don't you do, why don't you do this Keep, so keep the, up with the so, family. So music. the right. So the keep up with the family news. So the cassette tape was popular in the neighborhood. No one cared about the solo record, but the, which was the solo record? The cool down time. Yeah, it, but um, but everybody wanted more copies of this cassette tape. So that's a lo-fi experience. Yeah, cassette tape. Yeah, and what'd you record on a four track, eight track, half inch, eight track in the house? Um, I had a little room. Uh huh. I had a little room, and you were bringing people in to the room. Yep. Yeah, Cheryl Crow would come in and she came in and sang Polly Wally Doodle and uh-huh. 
um, Suzanne Vegas sang Erie Canal, and you know, so it was that that kind of thing. So a lot of songs on that record. Yeah, I mean, so that became a record. Yeah, I said, you know, I well, I realized what was happening, and I and you know, and the thing for me was that I felt like. So now I'm playing music again. You know, I'm playing music again that people are excited about. But it's not just grown-ups. It, kids are excited too. So my, you know, it, that's expanded. So And it's not just kids. It's everybody. So I'm thinking, this feels like I could actually be a useful member of society if I do this. <laughs> and I'd never really felt that before. You know, and, and, I, and, I, was, and I wanted that because... I, you know, my mind was, I was clearing up a little bit and I'm just thinking in that way. And so the idea of being part of maybe a better life for, for anybody, you know, making a sound, providing a soundtrack for a new family. Yeah. What a great thing. Right. And um, so I said, I'm going to, I'm going to stop everything else. I'm going to start a label for family music. I'm going to start performing for families. And this is, this is my thing. This is my new job. I'm doing this <laughs> yeah. and the rest of it, I don't need any more. And it was a very conscious decision, um, and I've been doing it ever since. It's amazing. It's unbelievable, man, to have a second act like this and to have it be so much better. And that it, you know, that there's the collaborations I've been able to have, and 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 it's opened my eyes to a much bigger world than I ever imagined. You know, and also it's organic, and the, and some of the stuff sounds like. Actually, kind of not raw in a bad way, but I mean, I can hear strings rattling and things buzzing, and you know what I mean. It's like it's like you're sitting in the room, yeah, and it's got that very intimate feeling, yeah, and that that's exciting to me. I mean, we I, I hope to never lose that because that's, why would you? It seems like that's what you know. We always recorded it in a house, you know. We always, except for that first one, was a little room. Then we moved to Brooklyn, and I just set up the basement, and that's where we made all the records. So it's a lot of records, dude. Yeah. What is it like? Twelve? I think it might be even more. <laughs> and you just and you don't mind doing traditional songs? I love doing traditional songs. I realize that the last thing the world needs is is a record of all Dan Zane's originals. Uh, Who origin cares? <laughs> you know, I, I'll write some. I like the songs I write, but there's so many good old songs, and there's so so many of them have been around because they're good for people to sing along with, or they have some kind of emotional core that still works in these times, or they just they have a, an element of mystery and and a lot of times like it, it's almost like a, a type like music is sort of magical in that you know the kid could be identifying with just the the lyrical uh, rhyming of words or or sounds but it, but the meaning for the parents in that moment could be completely different uh, could bring them back to a different place or the the poetry of the song is is deeper than the kid will will understand at this time but they're registering the sounds as something they can dance to or sing along with, and you have that 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 family element, that communal element. Yeah, and I th and I think, I mean, I love I, I love and and greatly appreciate children's music, and I think what we're trying to do is to make songs that you can take with you, you know, take with you through your life. That'll right, that, you know, that'll work for you on some level at any time. And and it, it, you're, you're huge. <laughs> you're incredibly popular. It turned out being in the Del Fuegos was a really good thing for the children's music because at that time when I started doing this, it was kind of a weird story, and it helped. Um, I got a you oh, know the story a lot of, of press. Like, right because you were this rock and roll guy, yeah. And now like you're born again children's music. <laughs> there was an article in the New York Times Magazine, uh huh, and that that after the first CD came out and that that. 
put me on the map. Good story. Changed my life. And then you won a Grammy? I won a Grammy, yeah. That wasn't going to happen with the Del Fregos. No. <laughs> <laughs> it sure wasn't. And a Grammy's a good prize to win, man. It's As a musician? Yeah. Sure it is. As an independent, as an independent musician, it helps. That was on your own label? Yeah. yeah. It's all been on my label. That's astounding. And, and, and that was a fairly... That album was a, a very kind of um, music of the world type of album. Yeah, I mean it's 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 because I live in Brooklyn. Yeah, I live in the most diverse zip code in the entire country. One one two one eight. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, but you know, so what happened was as I started to to you know as I started to meet people f- from different backgrounds and I started to understand and listen and you know, I got more clear on my own background. And so I could tell my story and I could listen to somebody else's story. And, and just, you know, the the bridges started building that way. And I started consciously trying to break out of my own isolation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, and, and, and music is, music is a beautiful way to do that. And yeah. so, so as I'm looking to learn other songs from other people and bring and because we're not, it's not a band that's going to make the record so they can tour. It's just me making a record with everybody that's around that's got something to bring to the party uh-huh. and to capture that party. And that's the whole goal. So if you have a song that you can teach me and an instrument that you want to play on it and you want to be on my record, I'll pay you, man. This will be great and we'll do shows <laughs> together. You know, it's whatever I want to do. And that's, and that's, and, 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 and then I started to get conscious about it and think, you know, about the, about me as a kid. Yeah. And I wanted, so, you know, if you're a kid in Nebraska and you're, you know, Fox News is on in the background and you're hearing about uh, people climbing through the desert, you know, and they're coming up and they're going to take jobs and they're and they're going to, you know, all this great, this scary stuff's going to happen. Well, you know, maybe I can make a record that has another story. Yeah. And it's a story of people getting together, singing in English and Spanish and collaborating and celebrating and doing their thing, you know? So let's tell another story and have that one be um, an option for somebody, you know? Because the world isn't a scary place. It's There's so many possibilities here. Oh, it's a sweet story, man. It, I'm so, so blessed. You know, the whole thing is incredible. Yeah, man. You turned it all around and you found this thing that's much bigger than you that, you know, connects people and your side of the street's clean. I'm trying, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great talking to you. You want to play a song or something? Yeah, that'd be great. I could play with you if it's not too complicated. Oh, please. Let's do it. That'd be fun. Everybody's talking about a day up at the lake Let's get our bags and guitars and all the food we can take I'll meet you on the corner when the sun decides to break Come on, catch that train Come on, catch it, catch that train Well, I don't mind the station, I don't mind symphony of a thousand different sounds in another 20 minutes we'll all be country bound so catch that train come on catch it catch that train all right take it away 
It's a topsy-turvy world we're all living in today Let's take a trip before the summer sun has gone straight When we ride, we ride together And so I say, catch that train Come on, catch it, catch that train Look out of the window, watch the world go flying past Every river, town, and village as they come and go so fast We'll fill the day with memories and I know they're gonna last Come on, come on, catch it Catch that dream And we'll all be country bound Come on, catch it Catch that dream All right, take us home <laughs> okay, buddy. Thanks for doing it. Oh, man, that was great fun. What a great guy. What a nice sound. That song was Catch That Train from uh, Dan's 2006 album of the same name. Uh, I enjoyed that conversation very much. Uh, if you got a family, Dan makes the family music for your family. Enjoy. What else, people? Uh, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Uh, get some JustCoffee.coop. Get the app. Get the free app. Upgrade to the premium app. Enjoy yourself. Uh, check the calendar about the tour dates. I'm tired, man. I'm fucking tired. <sighs> Making posters. Going to be a lot of new posters after the tour available in the merch. Still need a poster for Charleston. Yeah. All right, no guitar. You got Dan playing. He's a pro. Uh, Enjoy your Monday. Have a good week. I'll talk to you Thursday. Boomer lives!